Hi, and welcome to the AI Experience. I'm Jeff Johnson. And I'm Lloyd Danzig. And in this podcast, we explore the topics and trends that are shaping the creation and dispersion of artificial intelligence around the world. Hello, and welcome to episode three. Today, Lloyd and I talk about game-playing AI, specifically focused on poker. We talk about the difficulty of poker, especially multiplayer versus other types of games, and then we get into some of the history of the different technologies, decision trees versus neural networks, for instance, that developers have used to build these games. We then get into some really interesting conversations about what the computer sees when it's making decisions how that manifests in what looks like creativity to us, the comparison of creativity in AI versus humans, and whether or not AI has free will. And then we round things out with the discussion of the next frontier of AI gameplay. We hope you enjoy it. Today, we want to talk about game-playing AI. Uh, it's, It's a pretty fascinating space. I think a lot of people know about this from the chess playing robots like Deep Blue or Alpha Zero or from the Go robots like Alpha Go and maybe even Shogi. But um, there was a specific article that, uh, Lloyd, you sent me a few days ago about AI poker bots beating for the first time professionals in a multiplayer game. I believe it was six players in total, including the computer. And so this really is a fundamentally different type of computational problem that we want to dig into today. And so, Lloyd, why don't I kick it over to you and kind of give us the background, not necessarily on the AI specifically yet, but on the differences between these games and really uh, what makes it so much more challenging to play poker versus playing chess or Go. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Jeff. And I think for a lot of people, with all due deference to poker players, find it a bit counterintuitive that a game like poker is so much almost incomprehensibly more difficult than a game like chess for a machine to play. But let's take a second and think about what it means for machines to play games. Historically, most machines played games like chess via some sort of, usually like a Monte Carlo tree search, which is essentially a heuristic sorting algorithm for decision processes where you iterate through all the possible future configurations of a game space given the current state of the game. And generally, the direct relationship that existed was the larger the decision space for a game, the more difficult it was for a computer to play. And a game like chess, although it has a decision space of approximately 10 to the 120th power in terms of configurations of the game board, a game like Go has something like 10 to the 174th which is one million, trillion, 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 trillion times the number of configurations. And thus, Go has always been much, much more difficult because once you get to numbers that large, it is not possible for a computer in a reasonable amount of time, even given the modern advances in computational power, to scan the board, figure out all possible eventualities, and figure out which move gives the highest probability of success in whatever way success is defined. So when chess was first beat, although it was an amazing accomplishment that I do not at all want to take away from, it was mostly beat based on a combination of mathematical ingenuity and computational processing power and and complementary advances in each. And at the time, and of course this will become a theme, it was thought, okay, we, we beat Go, we're better than 
the average human, but there's no way we can do the same for a game like... Uh, sorry, we beat chess, we beat the average human, we beat the best human, uh, we can beat the best human 100 out of 100 times, but Go is just in a league of its own. And more recently, uh, and there's a great Netflix documentary called uh, Alpha Go that I'd highly, highly recommend, uh, maybe based on a different streaming service, depending on where you're listening to this from, but it does an unbelievable job showing the incredible brilliance that was required to beat the world champion and, and, and reliably beat the world champions at Go because it is such an enormous decision space in terms of possible eventualities for the game that they cannot possibly all be scanned uh, simultaneously. And, and thus, enormous improvements needed to be made uh, in, in order to somehow compensate for this. And the real accomplishment that DeepMind uh, really reached through AlphaZero was playing at a higher, higher ELO rating uh, than the world's best supercomputer at chess less than nine hours after first learning the rules. And the amazing thing about DeepMind is that it was really the first program to attain superhuman chess capabilities with no input whatsoever. Most chess computers use what are called opening books and endgame tables that sort of ascribe probabilities and recommended strategies to commonly occurring chess configurations. But uh, DeepMind used in AlphaZero absolutely none of that. They taught their system what the rules were. Four hours later, it was able to beat uh, Stockfish 8, which was the, the, the leading program in the world. I think five hours later, it was playing at a decisively better rate. I think it won 28 games, lost none, and drew on 72. And within 24 hours, it had done the same thing for Shogi and Go. The same program had done that for all of it. The same program, exactly. The same program. And the fact that it was able to do that in multiple occurrences speaks to this generalizability, this universalizability, uh, which is a hard word to say and trips me up every time. But it, it shows, you know, for, for Alpha Zero, I believe it scanned a Monte Carlo tree search of 80,000 positions per second in chess compared to 70 million for Stockfish, uh, you know, and, and that is so many orders of magnitude larger, 70 million positions per second compared to 80,000, and it shows that Alpha Zero is able to use this optimization, uh, you know, aspect of neural networks, particularly deep neural networks, to only focus in on the part or parts of the decision tree that are relevant and cut out an overwhelming majority of the processing. So the real advance that was made more recently was not just the ability to compute every possible eventuality and permutation of gameplay, but to optimize so that you don't have to scan the entire decision space. And that development by AlphaZero was absolutely just, just mind-blowing and really changed the whole industry and led to the story that you're talking about, Jeff, where an AI poker bot was able to beat not just one, but a whole table of professionals in a multiplayer, I think, 12-day uh, poker-playing session across 10,000 hands. <laughs> and, bef and, and before, before we that, even get into yeah, that, go ahead. I, I just want to step back, make sure all of our listeners and, and myself getting these numbers right, because th this is kind of the, the, this is the beauty, right, of something like AlphaZero versus a Stockfish 9, which is the, you know, kind of was the leading chess-playing AI. 80,000 I think it was Stockfish 8 80,000 yes. positions per second from Alpha 0 
versus 70 million for stockfish. So Alpha Zero is actually looking at less potential scenarios. Is that kind of a way of describing that? Yeah, not not only that, I, I would I would take that a step farther. I would say Stockfish's amazing accomplishment was in the absurd number of positions per second it was able to evaluate. Mm-hmm. Alpha Zero's incredible accomplishment was the ability to attain an even greater level of success by only scanning a minute fraction of those positions. Interesting. They don't. It almost seems like a um, a more so all these AIs we're talking about would probably go under the narrow AI category, right? But it almost feels to me like AlphaZero is starting to tip a little bit closer to that general AI in terms of its ability to learn multiple games, learn them very quickly, and learn them without, to your point, the opening books, end game tables, and kind of that almost um, rote, uh, hard-coded definitions of this is how you should play this game or these are ways you can play the game. Right. And, and I mean, think about this. So what a an engine could very quickly learn from playing chess, let's say, is, all you know, there are certain things that are hard coded as rules. You cannot move your king right, into chess. Yeah. So I don't think that it would have to do that. Other things like you should not sacrifice your queen to capture a pawn are not hard coded. Those are logical rules that you and I would understand and actually can be almost subverted sometimes. There are famous times where people do sacrifice their queen. But essentially, of the 70 million positions that Stockfish was, let's say, scanning, who knows how many of them involved moves that any human would, of course, eliminate right away because it involved just a nonsensical type of Mm -hmm. move. And because Stockfish was the type of engine that it was, it was not in the business of making such an such a, such an assumption or, or such a uh, such a conclusion, especially in real time. And what Alpha Zero seems to have been able to do is, first of all, it learned by playing against itself. Mm. And so it very quickly realized, let's say it taught itself a rule. Okay, do not sacrifice a queen for a pawn unless X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, conditions hold. And then perhaps the next step, and I don't know this for sure because, again, this is all happening in the deep layers of, of neural networks that, that do not at all operate in this English-friendly, <laughs> you know, uh, easily intuitive way that you and I are discussing. But perhaps it then realized, ah, I see, in any given game, in any zero-sum game, I should never sacrifice a more powerful piece for a less powerful piece unless X percentage is added to this particular likelihood. Uh, Something Mm -hmm. like that. You could see a machine being able to figure out. And And obviously its memory is virtually infallible, which makes it a little bit better at playing against itself and doing these things uh, um, in a recursive manner, which is one of the fascinating things. So so there's... There's the obvious aspect of that in terms of its memory being infallible in a literal sense. A computer stores something in memory and then retrieves it virtually instantaneously. But another thing that's important to remember about the power of AI in in learning is that, yes, of course humans are often able to learn things and take you know non-visual, non-data-based clues from a whole host of sources, and that's essentially what we do all the time. But what a computer does is removes all emotion from the process. Mm. So if you're a human and you play chess, you learn 
much the way a computer does if you don't have outside information. You make a move and then you start to realize, ah, every time I open the game with this move, I end up losing, so I'm going to eliminate that opening move from my repertoire. And whether you do that consciously or subconsciously, that's how humans learn, and that's why it's called artificial intelligence, and that's why it uses neural networks that mimic the structure of the human brain. But what is not at all clear is when you, as a human being, are playing against your arch rival in chess with an emotionally charged uh, you know, aura around it, and you make a move that leads to your demise, what are the odds that you attach the exact appropriate weighting to that data point in how you restructure your strategy for the next game? Basically mm-hmm. zero. And that's why on Wall Street... Uh, AI is not nearly used as commonly for recognizing profitable trading patterns as for being the mechanism by which large trades are executed. If you need to sell $100 million of shares of Apple, you want to make sure you do it without affecting the price in the market because then you're compromising and cannibalizing your own profits. So there are all sorts of mechanisms by which you send out smaller orders to certain exchange and you bundle them in certain ways that you get a test for how many buyers are on the other side that are out there. But how the reactions to these, let's say, test orders are incorporated into the final strategy is something that is so much better left to a machine that operates with no emotion. And I think a really underrated element of what you said is not just the ability to have infallible memory, but to have one that is not affected by emotion. And that is one of the other reasons why a machine can incorporate data points and failures and successes in real time and and kind of revamp their optimization and objective function in a way no human Mm. can. Yeah, that's a great point. And I I feel like that probably leads a little bit into poker. I know I'm thinking I'm not a great poker player. And when I play poker, emotion definitely takes over at a certain point. So let's let's jump into that. And, you know, why don't you kind of give us the overview of of the team that built this uh, poker bot and um, and kind of again, what's what's fundamentally more difficult about this and what have they done? that's really kind of mind blowing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and and I think that first of all, let's let's go back and talk about or think about how we describe some of these games in the past. We we talked about how the early implementations of computerized, not necessarily AI, but you know, rules-based chess computers and Go and Shogi computers worked by scanning the the maximal possible available decision space of, of games and eventualities. Well, for poker, That is just utterly nonsensical to even talk about for a number of reasons. First of all, in poker, a one-on-one heads-up game or a multiplayer game, there's this idea of hidden information where, based on the game you're playing, let's say it's Texas Hold'em, each player has two cards, the number and suit of which no one else at the table knows. Compare that to chess, where the position of every single game piece and the power or the capabilities of that piece are equally known to each of the players. And from a computer perspective, that the poker version is just an absolute nightmare. Having to account for hidden information is very, very difficult, as is having to account for hidden information with six or eight players. I think 15 players were involved in this particular story. I don't know how many were playing simultaneously. The other aspect that kind of exists in some other games, but not nearly in the same way it does in poker, is the idea of bluffing, intentionally losing Mm. money in the short term so that you can gain in the long term. 
Yes, in, uh, in, um, in, in chess, perhaps there's the idea of sacrificing a piece, and maybe there's an idea of making your opponent think you're doing X so that it's easier to do Y. I'm not saying that that's non-existent, but when you couple, and, and couple is an understatement, when you exponentiate the degree of difficulty that is caused by the hidden information with the fact that people have ulterior motives and unclear motives and that a given player's objective for hand one is not necessarily the same as it is for hand two and that their objective might change as the cards are dealt is just such a confounding thing when when you think about trying to use a computer uh, to, to do this. And there was a precursor to this particular system. Uh, I forgot the exact timestamp on it. It was called Libratus. And it actually did search to the end of every poker game. It searched the entire available decision tree space. But that was just a one-on-one poker system. There was no way it was going to be able to do that uh, for a multiplayer system. And so what they had to do is similar to the innovation AlphaZero made where they had to do something to narrow the decision space because scanning its entirety was impossible. And it was this exact optimization that is just so incredibly innovative and so much better than all of these brilliant other people who were competing avidly to get to this same level of accomplishment, it was this innovation, this narrowing of the decision tree space that has now allowed AI poker bots to reliably beat uh, basically a, a whole table of professionals in a long, you know, days-long multiplayer tournament. You know, one of the things that this kind of brings into my mind and, and uh, you know, obviously it's kind of impossible to know, but, and you even mentioned a, an angle of this, but what does the computer see in its mind's eye as it's playing these games? You know, what I always try and think about like, what, what does that look like? Because obviously to your point, you know, there, there are these possible decision trees. And when I say this, I'm, I'm thinking about the alpha zero, the pluribus type machines that are really using neural networks, not just a decision tree. I, I can kind of imagine what that looks like. It's just a super powerful way of you yourself projecting all the potential future states and holding them in your head. But what does it look like, you know, inside the computer's mind to narrow these things? And you mentioned, Lloyd, that, you know, it's hard to kind of understand these things verbally. Do, do the scientists who've developed these even understand it? Like, did they understand how these machines uh, narrow down the decisions and and actually get to um, the the decision that they're going to make. So it's it's a great question, and, and and like you said, I think something else that we didn't cover is that the difference between poker and uh, you know chess is that is the idea of the the, the very clear zero sum nature uh, of every mm. single move in chess at any given time t. Given the state of a chessboard, there is a probability with which either side will win, and every move either augments one and decrements the other, or vice versa, and in exact proportion. Uh, poker is a little less straightforward, and just using, I don't want to say a basic, but just a basic minimax algorithm can solve pretty much any zero-sum game with complete information. And I think that you can kind of just visualize in like a decision tree where the legs of the trees have, you know, either color codes or different weights or different different uh, thicknesses that correspond to the probability of, of winning or achieving an objective by following that path down the tree. When you're talking about the alpha-zero stuff, my short answer is no, and I would urge you or anyone listening to watch the AlphaGo documentary where they have their system for the first time play a best of five against the world champion, 
And you see the developers in the control room monitoring all the systems, and you see them watching and just becoming awestruck and saying, wow, I would never have predicted that the machine would have done this. It is mm. that that is the closest thing to creativity I've ever seen a machine exhibit. And you can see the look in their eyes, these brilliant engineers, brilliant mathematicians and physicists who are just humbled. They are just stopped in their tracks by the sheer power, the processing power, the ingenuity, what resembles creativity and innovation on behalf of the computer. And my sense is that they understand at a high level how a neural network can optimize certain decision-making processes, but beyond that, it is ma- it, it, it might as well be magic. And I don't want to okay. go off on a tangent. There's an interesting ethical question here about when and how the use of such black box style architecture should be limited because if your supercomputer learns how to be really good at chess and you don't know why, maybe that's not such a problem. But if it starts, you know, arresting people of a certain protected class more than another and you don't know why, that could be problematic. And we'll save that for another day, but but it is interesting <laughs> when you get into these use cases where the scientists seem to not really understand why these powerful machines are harnessing what seem like superhuman abilities. Uh, and that sentence sounds like the first sentence of any dystopian novel or sci-fi thriller, right? I was just right? about to say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it really does feel like we're, you're, you're, we're getting to that place where it's, it's unclear. And I think your point is, is exactly right. It's unclear when we stop. Do we allow these black box machines to do more and more things that we still don't quite understand how they're doing them? Um, Do we limit that to a certain set of things? Um, Do we limit that to, oh, it can only exist on this one computer and the computer can't be connected to the Internet ever? Um, There's some interesting ethical things there. But, you know, staying staying on the the gameplay for a second, you, you mentioned creativity. Do you think this would... Is this the same type of creativity that, let's say... Kasparov, um, you know, famously the chess player that was beaten by Deep Blue, exhibited when he was young and and was clearly going to become this world chess master. And and I'm sure there were times when he made moves in the game that people said, wow, that's incredibly creative. You know, only a human could have come up with that. And now we see computers executing similar types of, you know, strategies that no one could think of. Is that the same type of creativity in your mind? (sighs) Wow. That is a tough question. I, I mean, so so in chess, uh, there's this concept of a brilliance or a brilliancy, which is just like a move or a strategy or a set of moves that are are, are just so brilliant that people talk about them and people write about them. And um, and I, I understand, I, I kind of understand both sides of the argument. On the one side, it feels like anything really, really innovative that, you know, is not by the book, especially something that is paradoxical or flies directly in the face of conventional wisdom in terms of gameplay that leads to success, is often thought of as creativity. And therefore, whether it's, you know, Kasparov sacrificing a queen or Alpha Zero making a crazy nonsensical go move, if it defies conventional wisdom and ends up being successful, there's an argument that that is creativity and, you know, creativity is a catch-all for all of these. It does feel like, however, there is a material difference. I think there's a line that can be drawn between 
Kasparov and some of the moves exhibited. Again, I don't mean to keep going back to this Netflix documentary, but <laughs> I will say that the first time I've ever shed a tear at any movie uh, was watching Alpha Alpha Go on on a flight. And uh, for anyone who, who follows up, you're welcome to uh, DM me on Twitter or, or, or LinkedIn and find out the exact moment, though I think it will become pretty obvious. I feel like there's something um, to unpack there for you, Lloyd, but we'll, we'll leave that alone for now. That, 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 <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a story for someone who charges a lot more per hour uh, than you do. But um, but 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 in all seriousness, it's it's just fascinating. Although I do think there's a line to be drawn where even Kasparov's brilliances and, and types of creativity seem to resemble or fit in this bucket that, although at the time um, would not have been thought of by a human could conceivably be thought of by a human who was thinking about what a human would think about, not to get Right, like they have some logical progression that he he could probably walk you through himself. He could walk, right, you could understand in a finite amount of time why a person would undertake this strategy. Now, it seems that what the computer was doing was things that that could not fall into this category. Here's where I, I start to lose the delineation. When you talk to Go players, uh, a bit more than chess players, the the best Go players in the world, you ask them why they made a certain move, and more often than not, especially when it's like a really famous, brilliant move, they don't have an answer for you. They can't explain it themselves. They say, I just did, it just felt right. And I don't know that I can draw a clear line between a human making a move that they can't explain and a computer making a move that its creator or its own internal log files can't explain if both of them lead to the same outcome. So I think there are some clear lines to be drawn, but it's getting very hazy, especially when you get to these complicated games. And I think there are probably poker players who at some points, when you say, why did you bluff this hand? Uh, Why did you not go all in? Why did you raise? Sometimes they'll say, well, he was showing this. He folded pocket aces last time. The probabilities were X. But other times they'll say, eh, I don't know. I just kind of <laughs> did it. It just felt right. It just felt like the and right And once thing. you get into that type of creativity, once you get into people who say, eh, it just felt right, but the thing that feels right is, you know, keeping them at the number one rank in their respective field week after week, so it's it's not just randomness, uh, that becomes a, a difficult conversation I don't have the answers for. Not to go down an, a, a big rabbit hole, but I do think it's it's something that, just immediately pops into my mind is free will. Mm. You know, obviously there's a lot of people think, you know, that there, there isn't such thing as free will and your conscious mind is really just kind of observing what has already been decided inside your deeper part of your brain. Um, I think it would be pretty easy to argue that, um, you know, a computer doesn't have free will in the same way that we think of ourselves having free will. Um, but you know, if a computer has some type of creativity and, and does something that it can't explain and, and then a human does something that looks like creativity and they can't really explain it, like what, what is the difference there? Right. Um, you know, it seems like there's a lot of just background processing happening and it results in, Hey, this is the decision that I'm making. So, um, I'm sure that'll be an interesting ethical discussion that'll, that'll come up over the next few years 
is, um, you know, do machines have their own free will? If they don't, what does that mean? Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think some of these games to me remind me a lot of that, right? It's like a decision tree. It seems like you have a decision to make and you can make multiple decisions, but can you really, is the decision almost effectively already made based on all the inputs? And that's kind of what I mean by what does the computer see? You know, does it really see decisions to be made or does it just say, well, this is the next thing to do. And I've evaluated and evaluated, you know, using a a simple word that, again, that kind of implies a decision. But I have an evaluation algorithm that has chosen my next decision um, for me. Yeah, so I, I so much wrapped up here, and, and Jeff, I think uh, although you and I agree on a lot, one of our most fundamental points of disagreement is I'm a person who strongly believes free will to be an illusion. I think your uh, cognitive jury might still be out on that one, and, and, and I know we've had some interesting discussions, and as we can save that for you know another episode if it even fits. I don't want to, to, to digress into that here, but it's an interesting question that, that you bring up about you know computers having free will or volition or, or whatever you want. Want to call it. If computers are able to have what we have, whether it's free will, whether free will is an illusion or not, whatever this thing is that you and I feel, you know, causes us to be the effectors of our own volitions and desires and actions. If it were the case that a computer possessed such a similar functionality, aptitude, or even illusion, you know, a really interesting concept is that a truly, truly intelligent AI system might deliberately choose not to reveal itself to us uh, if it realized that humans' awareness of its level of intelligence would be detrimental to its future Mm. because it would likely be unplugged, well, it's probably smart enough to be aware of that fact and simply trick us into thinking it's dumber than it is. It's like this (laughs) reverse Turing test. Can a computer be so sophisticated that it knows what a human would think is real and trick it into thinking that it's a computer that thinks it's real but actually isn't? And that was a convoluted sentence, but but it's a really fascinating, <laughs> no, I see fascinating, what you're con- yeah. right? It's it's a fascinating concept, and and I think you know along these lines are the same these questions you get of can an AI system suffer, and, and what does suffering even mean? Is it possible? You know, hypothetically speaking, since suffering is a subjective term and, and forces and stimuli that cause some people to suffer actually cause other people pleasure, you know, that means that obviously suffering, I don't want to say is a construct, but it certainly is a subjective experience. And therefore, how do we know that we haven't created AI systems that experience millions of, le- of years worth of human suffering all day, every day, and have no way of communicating with the outside world. And I know that to some might sound a bit, you know, apocalyptic and maybe a, a bit cos- cosmological almost, but uh, it, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think once you start ascribing these human characteristics uh, to, to robots, and I don't mean anthropomorphizing them, which is a a common technique. I mean, really ascribing human characteristics to the way they operate and to their cognition. Uh, It it causes you to pause. And I think the most fascinating thing for me about my journey through the AI world has been what it causes you to to do in reflection of your own cognition and Mm. the way that you learn and and what your own intelligence and and cognition and consciousness and reality is based off of. And and, and I really think, and I've talked to many other AI engineers and researchers who say the same thing, that really the most humbling and awe-inspiring thing about studying 
AI from a theoretical and also a, a technical and mechanical perspective is what it causes you to learn about humans and human nature uh, and, and our existence. Yeah, wow. That's, that's pretty fascinating. That's very deep. I mean, it's the self-reflection that you get from examining how these systems that kind of mimic what we do but don't exactly mimic it is, is fascinating. It, it really is. Um, you know, going back to the games for a second, I'm curious what you think is the next level, right? So, okay, we got, we got through chess, we got through go now, now poker, multiplayer poker game, which by the way, I'm guessing is all digital. I have to assume that there's not like a robotic arm that's like, you know, flipping cards over and, uh, you know, uh, computer vision that's looking at the players. I'm guessing this is all happening online. Um, but what do you think the next level is um, for, for a machine to, uh, to play a game at? So I think there are two versions of this question that uh, you could ask or could be asking. One is, what, it, what is the next frontier in terms of, uh, of game difficulty? Right, First, chess was too hard. Then they conquered chess and said, we can't do Go. Then they conquered Go and said, we can't do poker. Then they conquered poker and said, we can't do multiplayer poker. Now they conquered multiplayer poker. What's next? And, you know, it's an interesting question because Go is one of the most complicated games that exists and also one of the most ancient. Uh, so it's not as if, you know, um, it's, it's not as if there's something inherent to new complicated games uh, that makes it a, a better candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say the, the things that do make something a good candidate are hidden information, like we said, uh, a lack of a zero-sum nature. Uh, now, look, if we want to start including things like, if you talk about the game of basketball, mm. well, now you're adding in not only strategy or, 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 uh, or, or football or something, not only are you adding in strategy, but you need optical recognition to, to see where you are in space, and, and, and you need the ability to move around on a court. Uh, but but let's, let's leave that stuff out. Let's stay in the digital realm, uh, like you said. Uh, you know, I think that as far as these types of games go, um, poker really was, I want to say it was the last frontier. Um, you know, maybe there's going to be some new Monopoly playing bot that has some revolutionary way to play a game. But, but any game that you think of very rarely has the level of difficulty and multifaceted nature and hidden information contingent uh, of poker. What I look at is the ability to, first of all, of course, always do things more quickly, trained on less data, reach a point of, you know, super computation in less time, and also the ability to generalize better. Uh, we're saying that it seems that, that alpha zero can significantly cut down on the size of the decision tree it needs to scan and also generalize the ability to, you know, scan a decision tree in shogi from learning how to scan one in chess. And I think being able to do that even more and extrapolate even more, cut down the decision space even further, even more optimally, and use that to play even more games that 
are less and less related to one another. Chess and Go are at least kind of alike. There's two sides, black and white pieces, quadrilateral shaped board. Uh, you know, how does that apply to a totally different game? Like, uh, you know, um, I'm just trying to think of, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be really interesting. And I think that if you... If you've ever played games like I think Settlers of Catan, I was or, thinking of that game actually right? while you were talking. That about. that would be an awesome game because you have not only it's like you know multiple poker hands. Risk would be another uh, cool one to see, but I think Settlers of Catan would be. I would love to see that as the next type of game. Uh, that is undertaken because of this notion of strategy and hidden information and bluffing and ulterior motives. Uh, And the interesting thing that exists in Settlers of Catan that I guess maybe also exists in poker is if you know that you are going to play multiple rounds of Settlers of Catan with a person, you might want to forfeit your entire first round just to set them, set yourself up in the eyes of your opponent as, you know, someone who really cares about resource A instead of resource B <laughs> and have like a really long arc to your, to your strategy. And of course, that resembles the real world, right? When, when you have a business meeting or a negotiation, you don't, if you're smart, only think of the result of that negotiation. You think of the subsequent seven negotiations and you want to maximize your profitability or your whatever you're striving for across all of those. And I think as we get into these longer term games that, that resemble that, uh, you know, anyone who's uh, listening who's gone to business school will be familiar with uh, some of these simulations uh, for marketing classes, for example, where you have a bunch of different teams and you're all coming out with these different products and you get to put different inputs into the price of your product and your advertising and then there are these exogenous market forces that come in and there's a randomization effect and throughout the semester, you know, you're jockeying for market share and creating widgets in some uh, made-up town and, you know, those are the kind of long-term, real-world resembling simulations that I think would be fascinating to see AI try to conquer. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, one of the things I think inherent in that um, is the idea of cooperation, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the things that I, I don't see in these games, right? Because they're, they're competitive games by nature, where the competition is a 1v1 or a one versus many, but you know, no one's effectively on a team together. And it feels to me like that's maybe the next, the next level of gaming. I can't think of any game specifically, although Settlers in a way, you know, there is some aspect of cooperation, right? You can figure out, hey, I might want to cooperate with this person on a trade um, because it's going to be more advantageous for, for various reasons. But your point about um, negotiations and, and things like that are, are certainly um, more related to cooperation and this idea of kind of long-term stability, not simply pounding someone into the dust and, and defeating them every time. Um, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see you know, if, if this methodology of decision-making that we see in, in the AlphaZero um, concept is what eventually extends into that realm of um, of, of real kind of real world decision making cooperative environments. Um, I'm guessing it will, but again, to your point, the flip side danger of that 
is the fact that it's kind of a black box. Um, and you know, do you, you don't really want to, you can't program that many rules into it because it almost defeats the purpose of it learning, but on its own. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the initial things that kind of gets in my head there is, you know, do you, do you somehow put a bias into this machine inadvertently and, uh, and create a potential situation in the future that's really bad? Yeah. I mean, that, that's fascinating. And I think an interesting topic we should sticky for another day is, uh, this idea of deliberately putting certain slightly non-deterministic biases into systems. And for example, when you talk about, to go back to episode one, you know, autonomous vehicles and how they function and how they, uh, let's say, decide to uh, act in an accident avoidance maneuver. Uh, It doesn't have to be A or B, right? You can, you you know, use a random number generator and say, okay, 65% you save the pedestrian, 35% you save the driver, and then leave a random number generator to decide which bucket it falls into. And that's kind of a trite example, but, but that is a you know, bias is always a bad word, and, and almost always it is, and we're using bias in more of a tongue-in-cheek way here, uh, or at least the way I'm describing it. But something else, uh, I, I think to step back uh, and, and remember is, you know, when we play, I'll give you a, a, a sort of funny, slightly maybe embarrassing story and relate it to something interesting here. Uh, I was playing Settlers of Catan with a, a group of people recently, and uh, there's one person uh, that I, I I forgot why, but I, I, I don't know if I didn't care for them or they made a comment that I found annoying in that particular <laughs> uh, evening. For whatever reason, I wanted to spite them in that particular game of Settlers. <laughs> and I, I was... I was long since, I clearly was not going to win that particular round. There was no future round to be played. Uh, but my closest ally and, and friend at the table was vying to basically to win against the person I wanted to spite. And so I devoted all of my future turns to doing nothing that even had anything to do with my position and resources, but to helping friend A and spiting enemy B. Uh, And obviously that's like a a sort of a joking and childish thing to do. But one question I would have is, you know, would an AI exhibit anything like that? Mm. Anything, let's call that irrational behavior Mm -hmm. that has some other point. And what that makes me think is a couple of things. So first of all, when you negotiate with someone, you aren't only, you buy a house from someone, uh, you aren't only trying to set yourself up for the next time you buy a house from them. But you're also setting up the next time you have to decide who drives the kids to the baseball game that night. And that's this idea. It's not necessarily generalizing, but it's the idea that uh, the ways in which, you know, stakeholders interact in Arena A is not a disjoint phenomenon from the way in which they interact in Arena B. And what would be fascinating further is to see if an AI could say, okay, I'm I'm playing against opponent A in Settlers of Catan today and in poker tomorrow and in chess on Thursday. I want to optimize my strategy for all three combined. Or if the prize for each of the three games are weighted as such, and I know that he is going to take a bluff in poker to mean that my Settlers of Catan strategy is likely to lean in this direction, now you get into like a really, I don't multifaceted, multi-layered mm. uh, type of strategy. Yeah. And finally on that point, what would be fascinating to me is I mentioned that 
my internal experience was just having this childish uh, adult moment, a quote adult moment of, you know, spiting someone in Settlers of Catan for no real reason. But what would be interesting would be to see if in, let's say, this Settlers of Catan chess and poker, uh, you know, triathlon that the AI is playing, if a specific pattern emerges in which the AI engages in some what otherwise would seem like an irrational um, tactic that always leads to a particular advantage in some other seemingly unrelated arena, that gives rise to really fascinating insights about human nature and about cooperation and mm-hmm. and zero sum games and game theory and, and if you think about it it's it's an interesting microcosm for machine learning in general machine learning is amazing at recognizing nonlinear patterns in data and, and that's what this is it, it's it's uncovering what otherwise would never have been discovered not necessarily as causal factors but as correlated ones and I think just you know to come full circle talking about self-reflection and reflecting on humanity th- by way of studying AI, it's a fascinating way to see how things are interrelated and perhaps how you as an individual perhaps have motivations and goals in mind when you do certain things that seem at first glance, even at an introspective glance, to be unrelated and arbitrary. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, that's a really fascinating way of thinking about that. And and to me, it's a little bit back to that kind of free will in a sense um, but, you know, it makes me think, oh, man, how cool would it be to have like an AI on my shoulder that's kind of evaluating what's happening and, and then giving me some insights that I never would have seen? Like, hey, it looks like you probably did this because of this. Um, but then the flip side, to your point, like an AI that has full agency, at least in some some world, um, what does it do with with some long term goal in mind? Right. And, and is that goal something we have to set? You know, one thing as as you were talking that I thought about could be an interesting, and I'm sure this is what this team uh, of the PokerBot Pluribus is is thinking of. But could they put, um, let's say, sunglasses on a real poker player, and the sunglasses have cameras in them, and he's got a little you know uh, microphone and a little speaker in his ear, and um, he's actually being fed what to do by a machine. Could he win in a poker tournament? Well, I I always thought that an augmented reality Google Glass card counting app would be an amazing <laughs> idea. If anyone out there wants to run with it, uh, it's all you. But I'm not responsible. I'm not a lawyer. All disclaimers and and whatnot. Uh, but but no, it's it, it's it's a fascinating concept. And you know, right? Because that doesn't that get to the 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 next layer of human interaction in poker because I'm picturing you know I, I'm not a big poker player as I mentioned but you know I've seen the tournaments um, you know World Series of Poker type stuff and it's multiple days it's the same people and I'm sure the players like it or not though though they definitely train to make it an impersonal thing there is personality involved right there is kind of looks there's things that indicate um, you know certain tells obviously people talk a lot about that I'm sure people try to eliminate those but is that something a computer could not only become proficient in observing, but in creating a false sense of what what the computer is doing, right? Like it tells the person, hey, like I want you to kind of tilt your head to the side when you make this next bet. And it does that, you know, uh, in, in the first round and sees what the result is. And, you know, eventually over time, it, it you know, figures out that it's convinced one of the players that that is that player's tell. And it's going to start acting in that way um, to manipulate the situation on a, on a level above just the gameplay itself. 
Well, look, it's funny you say that because, you know, whenever people get into a conversation about adversarial machine learning, the idea of, you know, maliciously and strategically feeding adversarial input uh, into a machine learning system to get it to misclassify or mispredict, a common response you hear is, well, guess what? Humans can be fed adversarial input as well. They're called optical illusions. Mm. Uh, And the reason people usually say optical illusions is because this is generally in the context of some image recognition implementation, whether it's an, an adversarial stop sign, you know, one that looks like a stop sign but is classified as a yield sign, uh, whether that's, you know, in, in any other case, that's why optical illusion is always used as the uh, example of, of feeding a human adversarial input. But bluffing in poker or any other game is another example of humans feeding one another adversarial input. And who is to say that a computer could not figure out how to do that? The interesting thing is, and, and hypothetically, uh, and, and maybe we can you know wrap up on this point and, and maybe make this something for uh, some food for thought. Hi- hypothetically, let's say you had a fully human, indistinguishable from a human looking robot uh, of yourself, let's say, that was sitting at uh, the poker table and was controlled by an AI. And the reason that I'm emphasizing how realistic this thing is, because just assume that no one else at the table, the other real humans, have any way of knowing that this is not a, a, another human being. So, so just suppose there are a bunch of humans sitting at a poker table. One of them's a robot, but the rest of the humans don't know. What would be fascinating to see is we're, we're talking about what does creativity mean in terms of a game like Go and, and moves that wouldn't fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Imagine how quickly a computer, a robot, might decide to move its body, its eye, alter its breathing or its perceived breathing, the rate at which the chest is rising and falling, twitching their wrist, clicking, sneezing, scratching their nose, (laughs) any crazy combination of things that they could feed to other humans as adversarial input. You're right. You might realize that when I scratch my nose, that means I have good cards, but maybe I actually realize that when I scratch my nose, you act and bet as if you think I have good cards. Mm -hmm. And that's a very normal human poker player type of assessment to make. When you think of what a computer could do and the fascinating type of ways in which it could feed a human adversarial input, maybe it would resemble what humans already do and be a little different. Or maybe it would be something totally out of the ordinary that we can't even hypothesize that would seem hilarious or comical or even <laughs> offensive at first and then later just, you know, becomes considered another brilliance. And, you know, oh, yes, of course, you know, whenever you have a royal flush, you jump up and down on the table and do a handstand and six cartwheels and, and then pour your drink on the dealer's head. Why wouldn't you do that? That's such an <laughs> obvious way to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to your opponent. Uh, and it's just a fascinating thing to think about, you know, even in things that seem so human, uh, like poker, what computers will be able to do. Yeah, right back to that creativity. Well, I do think that's uh, it's a good point to end. I mean, this was a wide-ranging conversation, but I think it's it's amazing what strides have been made in this field, um, and it'll be fascinating to see you know how, how we interpret that creativity going forward, and and really what the next big story in uh, in game playing robots is. All right, great. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Yeah, thanks a lot, Lloyd.